Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palanker. Here on the Media Path podcast, we become obsessed with a certain topic, and we hope we can spark your obsession, or at the very least, make you fascinated by something we find fascinating. We try to tap into the zeitgeist of the day, and I don't use the term zeitgeist lightly, Wheezy, as you know. Be it a book or a movie or a TV show or a tweet or an email, a message in a bottle, whatever. Wheezy, I know you've found some fantastic stuff this week. What do you have? Well, we were both sort of talking, and we noticed that a lot of books were coming out about the Trump regime, if you will, and uh, a lot of really fascinating books. It's like it's just a lot to dive into, so you may want to just pick out one or two, and we're going to go over a few of those that have come out. I'm going to be talking about uh, books by people who have jumped themselves out of the cult. So there are people who were previously in, and now for whatever reasons, either personal or external, they are out. Uh, We'll start with a book called Melania and Me, The Rise and Fall of My Friendship with the First Lady. It's by Stephanie Winston Wolkoff. She was Melania's bestie. She was charged with producing the inauguration and was then scapegoated when millions of dollars were mysteriously sucked out of the fund. Oops, where did those go? Uh, The book is full of dish and honest truth about the content of Melania's character, according to Stephanie. Uh, She, Melania, as you famously recall, she wore a jacket to the border that said, I really don't care, do you? for no mysterious reason other than she really doesn't care. She stole Michelle Obama's speech because she really doesn't care. She lifted Michelle Obama's slogan, be better, and then mangled it into be best. When Stephanie told her that this is not perhaps the best constructed sentence, she really didn't care. When Stephanie was blamed for stealing millions of dollars, Melania really didn't care, thus the book. Then we're gonna move on to Disloyal, the story, the true story of the former personal attorney to President Donald J. Trump by Michael Cohen. Cohen was Trump's pit bull, but crime families are only conveniently loyal, and Michael Cohen conveniently served prison time for individual one. Presidents can't be indicted, so convenient. This book is described on Amazon as the most devastating business and political horror story of the century. Trump emerges as a man without a soul, a man who courts evangelicals, and then trashes them, courts military heroes, and then trashes them, panders to the common man, but then rips off small business owners a con man who will do or say absolutely anything to win regardless of the cost to his family, his associates, or his country. True story, Fritz, and I heard this from a friend of a friend, so it has to be accurate. Uh, I heard that Trump refused to pay a doctor who had performed an operation on one of his children. And this to me is especially chilling because it's kind of like saying, okay, so if I need that doctor again, That, now that's no. the Mary Trump Sorry, story. Kids. I know. I I, I know. I, my jaw is bruised from hitting the desk every time I hear that. I know, right? Go ahead. And you have one we, more, right? Yeah. Okay. And then we have "Too Much and Never Enough" by Mary Trump. A Mary L. Trump, a trained clinical psychologist, and Donald's only niece, shines a bright light on the dark history of their family in order to explain how her uncle became the man who now threatens the world's health, economic security, and social fabric. And this one is especially fascinating because of Mary's background in psychology. So she kind of delves into the family history and she kind of gets you there in terms of like, I I do not understand how a human would go through his day in this fashion. And yet, you know, when you learn more about Trump's childhood, his father's um, psychopathy, if you will, you go, okay, his soul has been crushed out of him. It no longer exists within that body, at least. And then you have a few that you want to I didn't know what to expect from her book, but I gave her so much credibility because in all of her media interviews, there was no hot dog quality about it at all. There was no salesmanship. She was very matter-of-fact and very scholarly, and I really, I I was impressed with her, to be truthful. Well, I have a couple of book choices, and of course, the obvious one, I don't even know why I have to mention, this is the Bob Woodward book, Rage. This is the white hot book that exploded this week by the most celebrated presidential journalist and historian. And what makes this book so important is a series of concerning revelations, the biggest one being that you've all heard about. President Trump knew as early as last January that coronavirus was a serious and deadly threat. 
more deadly than the flu. This was the exact opposite of what was being told to the public. This, of course, is no surprise, but what gives it more impact is that Woodward recorded 18 interviews with the president, a total of 10 hours of tape. So we have actual sound bites of the president admitting that he was being untruthful. So there's no arguing about it. It can't be deemed fake news. And this was just the start. Now, the big question, Wheezy, is in this polarized climate, will this have any effect on the election as we get closer? I, I, uh, I really don't know. But it, in some of the imagery that we're seeing today where he had an indoor rally, he's on a stage where he's in the middle. It's like it's like a, a wedding party that's sitting at the head table, but he's sitting in the middle. And even the people sitting at the table with him are far away from him. So he's got an audience full of people who are indoors. He's got people sitting at his table who are not near him. It's like the they're at the wedding and just... they know the best man speech is going to be bad. So <laughs> they're distancing themselves. That's a good point. Well, it's just chilling to see that visual and to know that that, that is him saying the only person I care about is me. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if there are spikes in this one and the other Nevada uh, <sighs> things. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, another book here. This is uh, from Brian Stelter. It's called Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. Brian, of course, is the host of a show about media and journalism on CNN called Reliable Sources. Now, Fox has become essentially a mouthpiece for the Trump administration. It's been referred to as state TV. And Brian Stelter, being a scholar of media, dives into the danger that poses to our country. And my last choice is a book called Compromised by Peter Strzok. This guy is the guy that opened the FBI investigation into Russia's election interference. He spent 20 years of his career defending the United States against foreign threats. But it all came crashing down when his personal text messages with a girlfriend showed political bias. But now he's free to talk, and the book dives into whether or not the commander-in-chief has fallen under the sway of the Kremlin, which is the big question we would all like answered. He had an interesting career, including having a role in the Russian illegal case that inspired the successful TV show called The Americans. Mm -hmm. That was his thought process. And Weez, I want to bring you in here because we both saw this documentary on Netflix and Amazon called Unfit. What did you think about that? I thought it was just so well done. And I watch a lot of documentaries and this was just especially beautifully crafted. And, you know, it uh, presents its case. It, it opens on the words of Malcolm Nance. And Malcolm is probably the first guy who was just even during the campaign 2016 was just screaming from the rafters. This guy's a Russian asset. He has been groomed since the 80s by Putin. He's the perfect, useful idiot. He has low moral character and a high view of himself. He's easily compromised. The documentary just does a really beautiful job of kind of laying out the case where person, expert after expert. And it's interesting because one of the things that they say is like a lot of people would say you can't diagnose someone that you haven't, uh, haven't seen in your office. And they're saying, you know, actually the opposite is true because Trump is living such a public life that we're seeing more of his behaviors than we would see of someone who simply comes into our office for an hour. So I thought that was... Yeah, there's enough information there. Tweets is like doing a whole deposition. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, I, I agree with everything you said. It's really, it's quite fascinating and disturbing at the same time. I'm so can, excited to... Inter Go ahead, Weezy, what? Oh, you can watch it on Apple TV or I think YouTube for 4 or $5. That's where it's available, unfit. Awesome. It's worth your time. I'm really excited to introduce our guest. This is nothing but a fascinating story on so many levels. And uh, I, I wish I were skilled enough to write the screenplay about this man, although some have been done about the case he's involved in. He's Steve Hodell. Here is a little about Steve. Steve was born and raised in Los Angeles. He spent 24 years as an LAPD homicide detective. And I think, I don't know if the record still stands, he's got the highest solve rate ever in the department of solved crimes. When he retired in 1986, he became a private investigator. A major portion of his life has been driven by trying to solve and understand one of the most notorious cases in LAPD history, the Black Dahlia murder case. His connection to the case is fascinating beyond description because he proves that the killer in the Black Dahlia case, 
and even some other peripheral murder cases around that same time frame, was his own father, who was a brilliant and noted surgeon, Dr. George Hill Hodel. Steve's written The Black Dahlia Avenger, Black Dahlia Avenger 2, his latest book released in uh, 2018 with a couple of editions on Rare Bird Books called Black Dahlia Avenger 3. He's written Most Evil about further serial murders of Dr. George Hodel. Most Evil 2, which is the solving of the Zodiac case. His story has been featured on Dateline in 48 Hours and Dr. Phil many places. Now, Steve, for the sake of expediency, I'm going to do a little thumbnail of the Black Dahlia murder case so we can dive right into your color of your experience with this. Black Dahlia murder was a murder that took place in 1947, Lamert Park, South Los Angeles. Her case became famous because of the graphic nature of the murder. Her real name was Elizabeth Short. It was nicknamed the Black Dahlia murder because famous murder cases often got nicknames by the newspapers at the time. And it may have been named after a film noir murder mystery called The Blue Dahlia, which was released the year before. Steve Hodel, we're really happy to have you with us today. It's great to be with you, too. Welcome. Did I describe all of your uh, you, stats correctly? You did real good. It's, it's great to be sitting here with uh, Bermuda's barefoot and a shirt. Nobody knows it. It's wonderful. Isn't that oh. the best? <laughs> we try to make our guests comfortable. There'll be a, mar there'll be a margarita at your door momentarily. You're looking snappy from the waist up, brother. <laughs> okay. That's all so, Steve, uh, let, let's do some background. Who was Elizabeth Smart, who was the Short. Black Dahlia? Elizabeth I'm sorry. Short. Elizabeth Short. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Smart's Short another, another case. You're right. Yeah, sorry. A lot of people get that fake I'm so sorry. Short, uh, she was born in Medford, Massachusetts. Um, she dropped out of high school. Uh, kind of um, just was not, not into school at all. She went to Florida for a little bit, then came out west to Los Angeles and uh, kind of tossed around and, and got into some fast uh, moving lanes out here, unfortunately. You know, she was kind of like 19 going on 14. And, uh, but really, this was during World War II. So she really wanted to all she wanted to do was fall in love and marry a military man. And she was dating, going to the USOs and dating military guys and stuff. And one after the other, they never quite clicked. And then she got out here to Hollywood and um, she met, uh, much to my surprise, uh, she got into, again, the fast lane. And uh, at 22, she was basically uh, found uh, kidnapped, tortured, beaten, severely beaten, tortured extensively, and posed on a, as you say, a, a vacant lot in uh, South Los Angeles, actually at Lamert Park area. And uh, a woman walking her young daughter to the market, the three-year-old daughter in a stroller, looks over in this vacant lot and sees this, uh, what she thought was a mannequin initially. Uh, kind of laying there on the vacant lot near the sidewalk. And she looks closer and she says, oh my gosh, it's a, it's a body. So she runs south to the first door, door knocks it, nobody home, goes a little bit further, door knocks it, calls the police, says there's a body in the lot. Cops, LAPD's finest get out there. And this is like 10 in the morning on January 15, 1947. And uh, they're horrified. They've never seen anything quite like this. It's uh, a nude female, young, clearly young, no ID, no nothing. She's a Jane Doe. And uh, she's cut in half, surgically cut in half, uh, severed, bisected. Body's carefully posed, not just thrown in the lot. The hands are ab above her head in a like, surrender position. And the lower portion, Posed, juxtaposed just to the right near the sidewalk. And this begins what be, will eventually become, uh, she's a Jane Doe for about two days. And uh, fingerprints they get on her, they send them back to FBI. They come back with the name Elizabeth Short. Uh, and uh, they discover she worked at a military base uh, in Camp Cook, which is like 40 miles north of LA back then. And so they start there and they start following uh, their leads and stuff. They have no real leads. 
uh, all they have is this you know, terrible, horrific torture murder. And uh, then from there, it kind of goes into a whole uh, fictional phase. And uh, that's, you know, w when I get pulled into this case, uh, one of my hardest things was to separate fact and fiction because over the decades, uh, you know, it gets stepped on by hack writers. So I kind of had to separate the truth from the fantasy. Mm -hmm. And um, that was no easy job. And the salacious nature of, of the crime was splashed across the headlines because it was not quite TV yet for people were getting their visuals from their dailies. And from the police scanners, the press were the first ones down there and they, they took photographs. So people had these visuals in their minds and they must have been just horrified. Exactly. So a couple of, as you say, Louise, a couple of things came together. The fact that TV really wasn't full, going full bore, uh, it was still, um, you know, kind of like the papers above the fold for like 30 days, headlines. And we had six large newspapers back then in the 40s. And they were all, you know, trying to outscoop each other. And uh, so the more salacious, the more sensational the headlines. And uh, you mentioned the term Black Dahlia. Where did that come, come from? And it was uh, actually, it was Jack Smith, who was a famous uh, columnist here uh, back then in the 40s. Uh, very popular. He called a pharmacy uh, where she was hanging out and talked to the pharmacist at this soda fountain in Long Beach. And he said, yeah, the guys in here all knew her. And uh, she, they called her the, the uh, Black Dahlia, which was a spinoff on the Blue Dahlia, which was a, a, a noir film by, with Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. Wow. So that's, that's actually true. That's her, you know, so you've got this amazing name, Black Dahlia, very mysterious. You've got above the fold headlines, sensational. You've got a beautiful, very attractive young woman cut in half. So all of this came together too. I, I think the headline of this whole thing is that they had six daily newspapers in Los Angeles at the time, which is a commentary on where we are now. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you were on the planet yet when this murder occurred. I was, and I was uh, living with my mother and father in a very beautiful, unusual home in Hollywood called the Soden House. It's a Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. built home on Franklin and uh, Normandy. And I was, so I was born in 41, so I was six years old at the time. And we were, we were living there, which is about four miles north of the actual crime scene itself. And um, we were kind of, there's a whole Hollywood connection to my story that is kind of interesting too, that, uh, we may have, may or may not have time to go into, but basically, uh, I was six years old, seven years old, so I, I really wasn't aware of it at the time. I was just a little mm -hmm. bit playing at home. All right, the key figure in this was your dad, a, a beyond interesting person. It was George Hodel. He was a physician of some note in Los Angeles. He was a genius. Uh, you say very proudly he had an IQ one point above Einstein's. Describe your dad. Yeah, and, and I spend the first third of my book, Black Dahlia Avenger, doing just that, going into depth, because you really, to understand this crime and how twisted it is, you really have to understand my father. So I'll give you a quick bio here. Uh, born in Los Angeles, downtown, across the street from the Biltmore Hotel, of all places, uh, at Clara Barton Hospital in 1902 seven, uh, a young uh, musical genius at the age of nine. He's playing his own piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium, destined to have this wonderful, become a great pianist. Vernon Spencer was his teacher, who was like one of the, the, the great teachers of Los Angeles. Went to South Pasadena High, uh, at 14, he graduated uh, at 14, two, two or three years ahead of his time. Went to Caltech, California Institute of Technology, uh, at 14, um, not only was he uh, mentally precocious and, and uh, a musical genius, but he also was sexually precocious. Uh, he had an affair with a professor's wife when he was at 15. She got pregnant, uh, broke up her marriage, obviously. She goes back east and has this girl child. Dad is asked to leave Caltech after a year. He follows her back east says, I love you, I want to marry you, I want to raise our child. Uh, the, the professor's wife 
aptly names the child Folly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, wow. the, and, the, and the wife says, or the mother says, get out of here, George, you're a child yourself, go away, I never want to see you again. So he comes back to LA, passes himself off as 21, he's now like 17, um, and well, he starts up his own, first he starts up his own magazine called Fantasia, which is over the edge stuff, uh, very kind of surrealist stuff and all of that. Not only is short-lived, but uh, he hires on as a uh, crime reporter uh, for the LA Record, which was one of the big newspapers back then. And uh, he's an, actually, he's riding around with LAPD Vice at the time, of course, this is Prohibition. He's riding around with them and he's writing these tabloid stories. You know, uh, the judge is found with a young blonde and drinking in the speakeasy. And then he graduates and starts writing around with LAPD homicide. And uh, again, more tabloid stories, the bloody ace of spades next to the body, that sort of thing. And um, he does that for a couple of years. And then he, uh, He's, he's double dating with John Houston, and some of you, you and your, your uh, listeners will know him. He eventually becomes the great film director. But at that time, he was just the son of a famous actor, Walter Houston. So George Hodell and John Houston are teenagers, and they're double dating with a couple of girls, Emilia and Dorothy. And George is dating Dorothy, and, and after a couple of weeks, they break up, and they switch. John and Dorothy fall in love. They go off to Greenwich Village, get married. And dad looks at uh, Emilia and I said, guess it's you and me, babe. And she gets pregnant. He goes north, goes to Berkeley, Caltech, uh, Berkeley uh, for pre-med. Then he graduates, goes across the river uh, to uh, UCSF San Francisco to get his MD. Uh, not only does he have all these other gifts, but he has natural eye-hand coordination. So he's a natural born surgeon. So all the professors are vying for him to be their assistant because he's so naturally skilled. Uh, he also, at that time, is working as a, gets a job as a columnist with the San Francisco Chronicle of all newspapers and has his own column there called uh, Abroad in San Francisco, where he's writing his columns, weekly columns. Graduates, gets his MD, and he, uh, he's also, by then, he has another affair, and, uh, well, let's see, uh, first Duncan is born in 1928 from Emilia. He has an affair with another woman, she gets pregnant, and his daughter, Tamar, is born in 35. He says, enough of this uh, domestic life, and he leaves them, and he goes to New Mexico to a logging camp as the sole surgeon there. He becomes a surgeon during... FDR's CCC camps, does some surgery there for a couple of years, comes back to LA and hooks back up with Dorothy, who was now seven years married to John Houston, leaves him and she comes back and she hooks up with George. And my older brother, Michael, comes along in 39. I come along in 41 and my younger brother, Kelvin, was born in 42. So dad joins LA County Health, quickly rises to the top, becomes the VD czar of LA County Health Department. And so he's uh, doctoring to the rich and famous. And, and I guess befitting his position, he decides to buy the Soden House, which is, you've, I'm sure you've seen it, this, this Mayan temple. It's like Hollywood set uh, in, right in the heart of Hollywood, at Franklin, Normandy. And we all move in there and uh, Everything is going swimmingly for a number of years. He, he's uh, giving lectures and he actually is lecturing to LAPD. I came across a photograph when I started my investigation where he's actually lecturing to LAPD vice cops at the police academy. Anyway, uh, he's doing all of this and then suddenly the you know what hits the fan and um, knock at the door, Soden House and it's LAPD. Dr. Hodel, yes, you're under arrest for incest. So he's arrested for uh, Tamar, who was born in 35, was living with us for the summer of, uh, the summer of 49, um, and she was 14. Anyway, she ran away from home, was picked up by LAPD, and they said, why did you run away? And she says, well, my life is such horrible, 
why is that? And she, you know, discloses that and fought, had sex with her father and some other people at the house. Headlines, head of LA County Health Department arrested for incest. He gets a Jerry Geisler, who was like the Johnny Cochran of his day, top defense lawyer in the nation. Three-week trial, beats the case, and uh, is acquitted. They kind of paint her with a, a lying teenager, lying pathological liar brush. He gets off, and he quickly leaves and goes on. To there was her. a payoff involved, though, too, right? Or a suspected? Yeah, but we won't. We don't discover that until I get into the secret files oh. later on. But um, he, he leaves leaves in 1950, goes to Hawaii, and he starts counseling the criminally insane, of course, as a psychiatrist. He marries a Filipino woman there, and they go on to the Philippines. She's very wealthy. Uh, she's a cousin of the president of the Philippines, Marcos, and has sugar plantations. Anyway, he has four more children with her, and uh, basically that lasts about three or four years. That breaks up, hooks up with a, another, a June, uh, one of the, he opens up a market research company throughout Asia, becomes one of the leading market research companies with like 14 offices in 14 countries, uh, does that for decades, eventually comes back to Los Angeles in 1990. And um, I hook back up with him. We start seeing each other for the last decade of his life. And uh, long story short, long story long, he makes a, uh, uh, he dies in 1999 with a heart attack at age 91. So this is what basically starts me. Now, my career was with LAPD as long. I've been retired 14 years now. 24 on with LAPD, three under further investigations, mostly all at Hollywood Homicide Division. So I'm long retired and um, have this kind of, you know, by now dad has five wives and 11 children. <laughs> and I, I'm his favorite. I mean, go figure, you know, but whatever. And, uh, I just want to stop you here for yeah. a minute because Weezy and I discussed you at length before you got here. And we think one of the fascinating things about your case was that the high esteem you continued to hold your father in. And it sounds like Tamar, who was the abused sister at 14 years old, also, even after his death, held him in high esteem. It's so interesting. That's very true. You know, and I mean, I never had a clue to any of this. Of course, I didn't know. A lot of his early history, I didn't know of this until I started the investigation. And initially, I started out to show that dad had nothing to do with this. And I loved my father. And to this day, I still love a part of him. You know, and I do, I see him as a Jekyll and Hyde. So and was I, there, was there an, your original intention when you started to suspect was to absolve him? And was there a moment where you had to turn and mourn the person you thought you knew? Absolutely. Yeah, it started out, so after dad's passing, I'm on the phone to Tamar, who's living in Hawaii, and we're talking about the great man's passing, and as you say, she still loved him. You know, I mean, he was this larger-than-life uh, personality that, you know, she was still in, very much in love with him, and uh, despite what had happened to him. And um, we're talking, and I'm talking about him, and we're talking about all his great points, and out of nowhere, she says to me, well, you know, he was a suspect in the Black Valley murder. I just about dropped the phone. I said, what are you talking about, Tamar? Where in the hell is this coming from? She says, well, he didn't do it, but he was a suspect back then. I said, well, where is this coming from? She says, well, they took me to trial. The cops that were taking me back and forth to juvenile hall told me they thought he was the Black Dahlia killer. I said, well, there's no way. I mean, and I, I had been, through my life, I had seen my father on regular occasions, as fates would have it. I was in the Navy for four years. And I was stationed at Subic Bay, and he was living in Manila. So I'd go down, I'd put my white shark skin suit on, and go there, you know, and we'd go drinking and winching. And I, I loved my father. And, and um, but he was always very remote and distant, but still, that's okay. And so when I heard this, I, and she said, the black guy, I didn't even know the victim's name of the case. You know, I said, well, I know it was a famous LA case, and I remember the Academy. We saw these horrible pictures, but that's it, you know. Anyway, I, said, I, just, want to no way. I just want to jump forward and say, uh, so we have time, because yeah. this is the real spectacular part of your story. His death 
is what drew you into the story. Tell that. Yes. So he dies, and actually, uh, it turns turns out to be a uh, overdose. He took an overdose of seconds, which we'll discover later. But anyway, at 91, uh, and it wasn't out of remorse. It was out of his fear of being paralyzed, had heart condition. Anyway, he dies, and I get this information, and I said, well, I'll be able to establish he had nothing to do with this in a hot second. And so I start getting into it and I find out, well, he was a surgeon. Interesting. And I look at the case and I find out her name, and the basic facts. And I said, well, I can't really do an absentee investigation. I'm going to have to go back. I was living in Bellingham, Washington. I'm going to have to go back to LA. I go back to LA and I start my investigation. And doors keep opening. I started interviewing different people that knew my father. So it was a two-pronged investigation to learn more about my father and to learn more about the crime itself. And ultimately, after two years, we don't have time to go into all the details as to why, but it all comes together. And I go to, in secret to Steve Kay, who was a head deputy DA. He worked with Bugliosi on the Manson case, uh, highly respected. And I said, here's the deal. Here's the photographs, the graphics, the investigation. He took five months to look at it and came back and said, okay, well, based on this, I would file uh, a number of counts on your father, one on the Black Dahlia. There's enough there to file and win it in the jury trial. And there's another, anyway, the other second shock to me was he was a serial killer. There was a dozen uh, unsolved murders in the 40s that the, actually the police had linked together, uh, some of them together, four or five. And uh, I present in the book, I present the linkage on those two. So he says, then I file on another case, the Gene French red lipstick, where the suspect wrote uh, a, 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 a Obscenity FU signed at BDA for Black Dahlia Avenger. He says, I'd file on those two and I'd win it in court. He says, you're probably right on the others. So with that, I said, okay. So I went ahead and I wrote the book and it came out in 03. And, um, you know, a lot of publicity and a lot of naysayers. Oh, this is a daddy dearest, you know, this sort of thing. And a lot of questions about, there was a photograph in the book that a lot of people to this day uh, say isn't her and it may or may not be but it no longer matters so that gets steve lopez who you may or may not be familiar. oh yeah the great writer for the la times wonderful right. writer. so i go to him and i say hey steve this is i didn't know him but i just said you know you might find this interesting and he starts investigating it and he goes to lapd and says hey there's this odell and says his father's a black daddy killer blah, blah. and they say go away we don't talk about unsolved cases they just shut him down. So he goes to the uh, head, he goes to Steve Cooley, who was DA at the time. Says, hey, hotel, lockdown, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Says, well, I'm not spending a dime with taxpayers' money on a 60-year-old case. He says, but you know, there is a file in the in the vault on the Black Dahlia. Would you like to see that? You know, Lopez, yeah. So they go down to the vault, unlock it. He gives him this box. He goes up to a room opens the box and out falls a photograph of Dr. George Hill Hotel. And he just goes, whoa, I guess he was a suspect. Anyway, and then that's of course the big, you know, Steve Hodell could give you to speak for 20 hours on why it all comes together. But it's still, it's something. I'll tell you, there's some really interesting evidence too. One is, uh, it, it reflects on your family relationship with a surrealist photographer by the name of Man Ray, who was a friend of your father's and came to the house. And one of the things that raised your suspicions about your father was the fact that Elizabeth Short's body was posed to sort of mimic a Man Ray photograph. Talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, basically, Man Ray was our family photographer and there photos of us boys and stuff. They were very close for that decade that Van Ray was in Los Angeles. And the whole key to understanding all of these murders is what I call murders of fine art. And this was dad's personal insanity. His, 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 uh, his ties, he was, a, in, he was a surrealist. Where the others drank their wine and talked the talk, dad walked the walk. And he really believed that there was no difference between the dream state and the waking state. And you could do whatever you want. Kind of that uh, Aleister Crowley saying, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And that gave him total freedom to do whatever he wanted. And uh, as in the, the subsequent books, I keep, I've made a lot of linkage. We are now, this is the big focus on, and really the most fascinating of the, all of it is, as you say, 
for it's the uh, the linkage to surrealism, and it's it's linked to not only the the famous photograph of Man Ray that he takes a woman bisects her in half, poses her body just like the Dahlia, and uh, uh, it's called the Minotaur, which was the beast on Crete who was fed maidens to keep alive. Uh, so there's a minotaur, and then there's the lips he cut, surgically cut from mouth ear to ear, uh, which resembles uh, the lovers, which is another famous Man Ray painting. But the most shocking of all was more recently, I discover on the right hip, there's a strange di uh, uh, di diagonal crisscross cuts. And I came across a, a painting by Man Ray called Les Equivoques which is this pattern, this crisscross pattern on the hip is on this woman's face. And it's actually Elizabeth Short. I believe it looks like she was actually posing for Man Ray in 1943. And I don't know if George introduced her to Man Ray or Man Ray introduced her to George, but, but it's, you know, her hairstyle, the same thing. And it's got this, this geometrical figure on the face and it, he's taken that and carved it on the hip. And there's a whole bunch more. We've got a, now we're up to about a dozen linkages to surrealists. And amazingly, so you, go ahead. Please. So you you never stop finding clues. You never stop looking. And I want to get to more of those. But first, I have to stop and read a commercial. Okay. So give me just a moment. <laughs> Okay. Uh, winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means survivor, super contests, and squares. At my bookie, it's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now and make your first deposit to get a dollar for dollar match all the way up to $1,000 and grab yourself a free entry into the famed MyBookie Super Contest. To play in the contest, all you have to do is pick five NFL games against the spread to have a chance at $100,000 guaranteed in cash prizes. The best part is MyBookie has thousands of bets to choose from. The full NFL slate and the NBA playoffs. From live betting to championship futures, every play you want to make is waiting at MyBookie. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your cash. Use promo code THINGS and double your first deposit now. It's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Back to you, Fritz. Well done. Hey, I, Steve, I think it's a good time for us to set the stage because you make mention of a really interesting fact for those of us who have been living around Southern California for a long time, sort of the corrupt police atmosphere that happened back in the 40s. You had uh, Chief Parker, who was this legendary uh, police chief who came in and whose mandate was to clean up the police department. So there was a lot of corruption at the time. And also, the forensics at the time aren't what they are now. So what about the what about clues like fingerprints and blood samples and all that? How important was that to you, not being as technically advanced as we are now? Right. And of course, DNA and all of that is was uh, came just certainly after I retired. So I didn't really get into that during my career. It all came later. But the fact is, I thought this would be a slam dunk case. I would go to LAPD and say, hey, you know, there's got to be DNA evidence stuff. Uh, I've got my father's DNA. Uh, I obtained that from some of the articles. Let's just compare it. End of story. And sadly, LAPD has been very reluctant to do anything uh, at all. Um, they, I think it has to do with uh, their image. You know, they, it's like, wait, wait a minute. He's dead. Maybe he did do it. But even if he did do it, you know, it, it's going to reflect badly on, because there was what we discover in the tapes is there was an actual cover-up. There's no question about that. These the five weeks of tape recordings, LAPD and the DA's office go out to the house, they stake it out electronically, they pick up dad, take him down and question him. While they got him in custody, they put microphones, not taps on the phone, microphones in the walls of the house. And they 24-7, 18 detectives around the clock for five weeks, and he, he admits to the crime and, and many more. And uh, he says, suppose I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. My secretary's dead. Well, it turns out they investigated his secretary, Ruth Spalding, a year and a half before for an forced overdose. They suspected he murdered her. And, and on and on. And um, he says, this is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement. So he was clearly with a $15,000 payoff uh, on, the, on the incest trial. Uh, so, so there was a whole bunch of evidence. There, there was no question about he did it. But the biggie, 
the thing that I literally fell out of my chair when I read it, when I'm reading these secret transcripts after Lopez, you know, finds them. I went down to the DA and said, well, Lopez looked at him, can I? And, can I? and to his credit, Cooley said, yeah. So I copied everything, took it home over six months. Anyway, there's 146 pages of transcripts, recordings. And I'm reading and it says, George Hodel and a German Baron, that's another man, named Herringer, says, go down to the basement. An object is struck, a woman screams. An object is struck again, more screams. Then they hear George say, don't leave a trace of anything. And they don't do anything. I mean, you know, do they're- Do you think that they had, uh, did he have compromise on people who had attended his sex parties? Or what, what, are, what are the layers? How deep did this go, the corruption? Because it would seem at that moment, they should have just been squealing on up to that doorstep and, and, and ramming down the door. It's just curious to me and, and kind of chilling that they did not. That's right. And I can't believe it. And it's like they're five minutes away. Yeah. Take out in Hollywood Station in the basement where I have my whole career. Anyway, um, they don't. For whatever reasons, uh, you know, I think they had just started the, the stakeout three days before. And it could be, to, you know, to give them the best credit, it could be they, they said, what do we do? You know, maybe he's into kinky sex. It's quiet now. Nothing. You know, they may have tried to call their Lieutenant Jemison. He wasn't home or whatever. But anyway, it remains, the fact remains, they didn't go. And of course, you also have to understand the timing. As you say, the city was in full corruption. Parker wanted to come in and clean, clean up Dodge. And uh, basically, if this came out, this is literally happening at the same time, he's about to be appointed. So I think it was kind of a, uh, you know, a Machiavellian decision to say, look, you know, and he split, George Odell's gone. Maybe we can get him. Maybe we can't. We want to clean up the city. Let's uh, put this away for now and move forward and then come back to it at a later time, which, of course, they never did. I mean, that's the, be that's, that's the best I can give it is, is that. And, of course, Parker did go on to do his best to clean up the town. But, but uh, there was just so much corruption, so much payoffs. Everybody was on the tape. Half it was only confidential, as you've said in previous interviews. Right. It was, a, it was exactly that film. Exactly. And, and uh, so, you know, in a way, part of me cannot kind of understand it. It's kind of for the higher good. Let's, you know, uh, because if he if, if he's arrested, he's going to lay out a whole bunch of stuff on a whole bunch of people. You know, he was uh, performing abortions for the rich and famous, for the Hollywood film people. You know, he was into all of that. And uh, I'm, I'm now working on hopefully the last two books, which are going to be the early years. He didn't start in 1940 at age 40 and say, I think I'll be a serial killer. So I'll be presenting the 20s and the 30s. He actually started as a teenager. So I'll be just crimes of the 20s and the 30s. So he had- What have you uncovered? Oh, you, you know, you, I, you'll be calling the people in white jackets. I can't tell you yet. But <laughs> what we're doing- So there were murders before the Black Dahlia? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a lot. And, and also that involves L.A., which is even they were even more corrupt in the 20s and 30s. So it involves all of that. And he could reveal everything he knew. So they didn't want anything to get anywhere near this guy, really. You know, and so do uh, you feel like your dad's intelligence mixed with his sociopathy contribute to both his brazen arrogance and his ability to ultimately get away with all of it? I mean, he lives to be 90. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, he is super ego megalomania. Uh, his, uh, you know, he was a classic super sadist. I mean, there, everything you could think of. Uh, in fact, what we're doing now, I'm working with some really top people. Um, S.R. Bindler, who was a uh, documentarian filmmaker, and um, uh, T-Bone Burnett, and yeah, who did the uh, True Detective series, one, two, and three. So I'm working with those guys, and uh, collaborating with them. And we're looking at hoping doing a mini series in the relatively near future to make this, to tell the story because it's, you know, you've got an hour and we can't even, we're just skimming the service. What's so fascinating to me is that he outsmarts everyone but his own son. Yeah. Well, the person he that, made. Yeah. And that, that the whole destiny thing to me has been like, there's a synchronicity about this whole thing. That's just the doors, doors that never should have opened for me just keep opening. And it, it's uh 
you know, I'm a, I'm an agnostic. You said you're not a religious man. I'm not a religious man. I'm but an, after your theories in the case were proven about your father, you attributed it to maybe divine intervention that was driving you forward, finding the answers to your father's life that no one else was able to answer. It had to be you, according to Providence. That's a pretty interesting analysis. It really is. And, and, and well, as far as, you know, this, I kind of look at it as a, I, I like the synchronicity thing of it all. You know, that these things just keep, should have never seen these things and they keep coming to me and presented to me. The latest, most remarkable one was in BDA3. I have a woman in Indianapolis who finds a letter in her grandfather's personal belongings who was long dead. And it says, open only in case of my death. She opens it up and it's a, uh, it turns out that her father was an LAPD informant for uh, back at that time was a personal friend of George Liddell and lays him out for the Black Dahlia murder and another Louis Springer, one of the other horrific murders I'll talk about. And he said, and he says he's being protected by the police. And this is only to be disclosed in case something happens to my daughters. Nothing happens to his daughters, so it was never disclosed. So we got this letter, five-page handwritten letter, laying it all out, and talking about my dad and, and his connections and his crimes. Wow. You know, and just amazing. So it, it's, it's been, uh, for me, it's been a hell of an adventure. I, the cop, in, you know, and, then, and it was, in a way, I guess you'd say I'm psychologically bisected. I love my, part of me loves my father, the good Dr. Jekyll. The other part hates the monster, the, you know, the, the Dr. Hyde, uh, the Mr. Hyde. So, you know. So you are 100% convinced that the Black Dahlia murderer was your father? Not only am I, let me read you the quotes from the, the four top cops on the case back then. This is in the 40s. Parker says, we identified the Black Dahlia suspect. He was a doctor. Okay. Uh, chief of Detectives Thad Brown, who was uh, took over and became chief after uh, Parker's death. The Black Dahlia case was solved. He was a doctor who lived on Franklin Avenue uh, in Hollywood. Lieutenant Je Jemison, who was in charge of the Dahlia investigation in the DA's office. We know who the Black Dahlia killer was. He was a doctor, but we didn't have enough to put him away. Well, yeah, they did, but that's what, all he could say. And then the undersheriff for the county says the Dahlia case was solved. It'll never come out. The suspect was a doctor they all knew in Hollywood involved in abortions. So this isn't Steve O'Dell saying it. These are, and they're saying solved. Now, LAPD's position is it's, a, it's, it's, it's unsolved. Well, it's not unsolved and their own, those are, you know, their own men are saying it was solved back then. So it is solved. There's no question about it. The evidence, you know, we don't have time to talk. Recently, I mean, I was out with a, Cadaver dog, I don't know if you, the Franklin House, and he alerts to human remains. And the soil, collects soil samples, they're analyzed, they come back positive for human remains. And, and, and on and on, it just, you know, we're way beyond reasonable doubt in, in convicting him on that and, and many of the other crimes. Are you in touch with Elizabeth's uh, family at all? No, they haven't. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure if anybody's still living. Mm -hmm. I think there was, last I heard, there was one living sister, and I think she passed. So, and then, you know, the others, you know, I kind of feel sorry for the family, obviously, because so many psychos and, you know, there's been so much written about it and they really don't want anything to do. And I think they just assumed I, mine was another, you know, sensationalized, always, you know, doing it for the bucks or something, you know. Such a fascinating case. And the through line of your father's life was sex. At 15, he made a woman pregnant. He spent some time as a crime reporter reporting on grisly sex crimes. He wrote a column in the San Francisco paper called Abroad in San Francisco. <laughs> he became the head of the venereal disease department of L.A. County. He made a whole lot of people pregnant. He abused your sister. So it's been his M.O. since he was 15, when you think about it. That's absolutely true. And, that, and sex was his was the thing that drove him, but also the, even more so than that was the, uh, the, the sadist part of him, the megalomania, the, the nihilist, he didn't care, you know, nothing matters and I can do what I, I want and I'm the master criminal. And in most of these crimes, and we, we haven't even got in, 
story, but you know, most of these crimes uh, were, he was taunting the newspapers, uh, you know, wanting it to stay above the fold. You know, the marketing genius that he became in, in the Asia, you know, was there as a young boy, as a teenager forward, wanting the headlines, you know. So well, he toyed with his victims and then he toyed with the press. He just toyed with the world because he thought he was the master uh, of everything. What, I, what I'm wondering is, have you, did you take part in the I Am The Night uh, miniseries? No, I didn't even know it was being done. It came out, the first thing I knew about it was when I saw a trailer. I did do the Ruby, uh, and I, I I haven't even watched I Am the Night. Okay, it's ninety five percent fictional, and uh, you know I didn't even know they were doing that, uh, so I was involved. But I did involve myself in the Root of Evil podcast, okay. mm -hmm. which was really really well done, and and uh, you know I, I I support that. But the I Am the Night was just all fiction and made up. And, you know, it's amazing. Yours is the only factual book written about the Black Dahlia. There have been fictional books. James Elroy wrote a fictional book that had nothing to do with reality, right? Right. Other than and, using her name and location. Right. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so fascinated that somebody hasn't done a screenplay of your life, and I'm happy to hear that they're doing a documentary because I think it would be a fascinating study. Yeah. Especially talk murder is a fine art. I mean, this, this is because the visuals of it, you know, there's so much involved in that. And it... it there's no need to do another documentary. I mean, you know, 48 Hours and Dateline, they've all done stuff for me. But what I want is something that really tells the whole full picture. You can't do that in an hour or two. Mm -hmm. you, need, you need whatever, four, eight, six, eight. Can you talk about how modern technology is being used to, to uncover new clues? Well, uh, I've, I've been trying my damnedest to get uh, law enforcement to do DNA. I spent a considerable amount of money obtaining my dad's full DNA profile, which I now have. So now all they have to do, for, let's just take Zodiac, for example. I'm working now with uh, them. There is no confirmed Zodiac DNA, uh, despite what people think. You know, they've got four or five samples. Apparently none of those are matching each other. Describe what the Zodiac series oh, is. Oh yeah, so, so, you know, one of the key things that, uh, helped me along was uh, dad had a, as part of his MO was he posed the bodies near signs, street signs, giving a clue to the murder. So he poses uh, uh, the Dahlia near a street, just off a street called Degman, which is a murder he did earlier in Chicago, the Degman murders, lipstick murders. So then he poses, the, uh, and also there's a mountain view, he poses the French murder, lipstick murder here, off a street called Mountain View, which is a week before is where Elizabeth Short's buried at Mountain View Cemetery. So there's there's clues. Then when I get to Manila, he does a dahlia, copycat dahlia, nude body, cut in half, uh, posed on a, a, a vacant lot in different places. And he poses that off a street called Zodiac. And I'm saying, no way. There's, you know, no way. He can't be involved. Anyway, Zodiac was a 1968-69 series of murders in San Francisco. Uh, that uh, the killer was uh, picking on usually lone couples in isolated areas, shooting them, stabbing them, different things. But then he would taunt the police with these letters, heavy letter writing. I think he's written more than 20, 20 letters. Uh, and it's my position initially, it's my position in most evil one, that dad came back, reinvented himself as Zodiac. And it's just another twist off of the earlier crimes. He's doing these in San Francisco, which was his, the city he was in for eight, eight, nine years. And but I didn't say he was the suspect. I said, let's do DNA and eliminate him, or you know, in or out. But then in Most Evil Two, uh, a French high school teacher cracks the cipher, uh, which Zodiac had written on one of the things. It's a strange cipher, and it's old Celtic language uh, from 4 BC, and it's five letters. And those letters are H O D. E L. Oh Lord. Yeah. So, so anyway, but again, you know, it there's a whole bunch of things that's so involved because of the description. You think supposedly it was a younger man, but actually there were three composites and one fit that description. Anyway, there's a whole bunch in that. It, uh, you don't have time, but uh, I'm working now with hopefully I'm trying to talk these law enforcement agencies into look, let's just do the DNA. It's real simple. It's, they don't have to do any work. All they gotta do is look at my dad's DNA and say, yeah, that's it or it isn't. 
So mm -hmm. I'm hopeful with that. LAPD has been pretty stubborn about doing anything on DNA. Again, I think it's a part of, it's not that they have any skin in the game now. I mean, it's, you know, at this stage, but I think it's more the image. It's like, look, our two greatest heroes were Thad Brown and Parker. Mm -hmm. He's dead. Why, you know, kick sand in their face? I think that's kind of what it is now. But. Do you see a personality profile parallels between your dad and, and Jack the Ripper? A lot, actually. Yeah. yeah. He way out ripped Ripper. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think Ripper was good for five. <laughs> right now I'm at 25 murders on George through 30 years. So averaging one a year in, di you know, different locations. And, um, so, yeah, but the, the whole uh, taunting, you know, the Ripper taunted. Uh, in fact, it, one of the amazing linkages on Ripper is Jack the Ripper sent in an ear. He, cut, he, 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 he sent in a, no, a kidney. He sent in a, a kidney from one of the victims. He mailed it to uh, the police. And dad mailed an ear, a human ear, to the victim, to Degnan, the little girl's uh, parents, in Chicago, he mailed that to them. So again, that's right out of, he had to have been a ripperologist, a student of, of Jack the Ripper. Did your father, he abused Tamar, but did he ever, was he ever an active sadist in his relationship to you when you were a child? No, you know, I mean, he did, you know, if we were misbehaved, it was down in the basement, leather strap and a spanking. But, you know, that was kind of old school. I never considered that abusive. Uh, it was like, you know, that's just the way old school guy fathers did it back then. They, they spanked their children. And I never saw, I, well, I may have seen, but, it, you know, part of my mind is kind of block, blocked out a lot. I don't have a lot of hard, clear memories from that time period. Mm -hmm. So I may have blocked out stuff. Tamar, my half-sister who was living with us, spoke how terrible he was with with mom, my mother, pulling her around by the hair and hitting her and stuff. I don't remember. I Either I didn't see it or I don't remember it. So does your mom believe or did your mom believe that your her husband was the Black Dahlia killer? Yeah, that's a real tragedy. She was a remarkable woman. She gets short shrift. You know, she was very beautiful. Uh, you can see from the Man Ray photograph, she was just stunning. Uh, extremely intelligent, more, brighter than both John and dad put together just an amazing mind. Um, and basically she knew it, she knew everything uh, from the get go. And she basically went into a mother bear protective mode because she knew dad was capable and probably would harm us. So, she, and she maintained that she took it to her grave. You know, she was a serious alcoholic as I lay out the gypsy years in later chapters. And, um, you know, but a wonderful, beautiful soul. And uh, it's such a tragic life. And she knew this and she actually knew earlier from, I've, I'm discovering now in my investigations. From wow. Yeah. Very well, sad. Amazing. Lindsay, uh, yeah. Although we can continue this for hours, yeah. I do want to say to Steve that we just really were looking forward to this conversation because I don't know if this is a male thing. But the whole time I was reading your material, I kept thinking to myself how brave you were to walk down the dark tunnel of your father's dark side. And I was always fascinated by the dark side of my father. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a serial killer. But it took a lot of bravery to do that because then it involves your youth and your identity and your relationship with your father. And do you want to ruin whatever positive thoughts you have? So it was brave and beautifully done. And now remind me, your most recent one is Avenger 3. That's the most recent publication in 2018? No, actually, the most recent one is In the Mesquite. And that's a standalone murder that he did, a double murder of a mother and daughter he did in, uh, in uh, Texas. When he was, this is pre, this is 1938. So it's actually a standalone. I was going to include it in my, in the last, last one of my early years, but I thought I'd do a standalone. So that's the most recent in the Mesquite. And it tells of this uh, mother and daughter that he, he slays in uh, just before he's coming to Los Angeles. To, there it is right there. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Steve. Continued success to you. It was really quite interesting. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate it. Best uh, to both of you and the podcast. I think it's a, a great new career for you to start. 
<laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll see All right, you next come time. the credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediaPathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And we want to thank our guests, Steve Hodel. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.